this reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, as you, as you heard. And the next two weeks will be from that same part of Matthew, which we know is the Sermon, of the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount. It is where Jesus is essentially setting into place what it means to be a follower of his. And this is something that each of us either is or is curious about or perhaps longs to be. But we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at this part of the Sermon on the Mount that comes from the passages in the lectionary in preparation for Lent. Lent will come up after that time, and Lent is that 40-day period prior to Easter where we come, where during that time we're examining our hearts before the Lord. We're saying, Lord, would you please use this time to see where I'm missing the mark in my relationship with you? See where I'm holding back? See where you're actually calling me something, calling me to something that I know I want, I know I need, but I'm still hesitant. I'm still afraid. I still have things or stuff or issues, whatever it is. Lent is the time to be prayerful about it, to be actually a time of fasting about some of these things, to be reflective, meditating on Scripture, and to confess and to repent so that we are no longer the same people when we come out of Lent as when we went in, so that we can appreciate all the more the work that Christ does for us on Calvary, because Lent moves right into the Holy Week, to Monday, Thursday, and to Good Friday, and to the Resurrection Sunday. So I don't want us to be caught unprepared uh, when Lent happens. I don't want us to be in a scramble mode where we think, oh, it's here, and I haven't really prepared anything. So these, these sermon texts from Matthew, I think, will, will get us prepared to really allow God to do the work that he's intended us to do. Sometimes seasons come and go. You know, it's, it's fall, it's Thanksgiving, and then it's Christmas, and then it's spring. And you know, Don't let, I, I, my, I'm actually preaching myself, but I'll let you listen in. I, this is what I am wanting and desiring God to do in my life. I don't want to be the same rector, the same person, the same husband. And I think all of us have aspirations to allow the Lord to work in our life. So the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a, a preparatory series uh, in anticipation of Lent. And so the text that Cindy just read says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and, give, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let me ask you a question. When you got up this morning and you looked at yourself in the mirror, what was maybe the first thought that came to your mind or that you can actually recollect? Because we're kind of in autopilot when we get up. Maybe it was like, wow, it looks like I didn't get very much sleep last night. Or maybe it's like, I'm hungry and I need to get on with my day. Or it's time to get out and exercise. I'm looking forward to coming to church. What was on your mind and in your heart when you first looked at yourself in the mirror? You know, probably what was, what was not on the, your mind was this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I mean, when was the last time we actually thought of ourselves in those terms? 
It almost seems grandiose, except Jesus is saying this to us. He's saying this to us as individuals, and he is saying it to us as a church. It is, in essence, a missional statement about meaning and about purpose. Here's what Frederick Dale Bruner says in his commentary on this passage. He translates it this way. You folks are the most significant people on the planet. So when I get up in the morning, I don't think I am the most significant person or that, and I don't even think that necessarily always that, that the mission that God has us on, has us on as Holy Trinity, is the most, that, that that makes us the most significant people on the planet. And yet, because Jesus is doing the commissioning and the calling and actually putting, making us salt and making us light, because he is the author and the source of this, it is true. So as we think about preparing for Lent, we have to get in touch with the calling that he's given us, the missional calling that says you are salt and you are light. But we don't think of ourselves in those terms very often. What is, and we just should explore that for half a moment, to be salt and to be light. Salt is something, of course, that, that brings flavor to any food that it is put on. It is strong. It is noticeable. You cannot put salt on your food and not notice it. Have you ever had a pizza with anchovies? Like anchovies will just dominate and effectively kill a pizza. It is why, according to one newspaper, it is less than 0.003%, the most popular topping. Survey after survey says it is the least flavored topping. I don't know who the lucky person is, who's the, the anchovy salesperson. But I know they're not making a very good living if they're selling to pizza places. It's way too salty. Salt is something that just makes a difference as soon as you taste it. And Jesus is saying, we are salt. Just as salt flavors uh, food, so we are to be his flavor in this world, in this culture, with our friends, with our family, with our colleagues, with our neighbors. He also says we are light. We are the light of the world. It's, and he says, it, just imagine a city. If you are a city on a hill, the minute that light goes on, you can see it for miles. That's just the nature of light. The inherent nature of light, the inherent nature of salt is to be visible and it is to add taste. And it cannot be other than what it is. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, that I have put this, I have made you these things. John's gospel says the light that was, came into the world was giving light to everyone. We are light not in and of ourselves, as wonderful and as marvelous as we may sometimes think we are and accomplished, but we are light because of Jesus and what he's done in our light. Life. We are salt because of what he has done and what he has made us. And we are called to bring that to those that are around us. In the passage when Jesus is talking about the light, he says, explains it a little bit later. He talks about good deeds. Don't put your light under a bowl, but instead let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What kind of good deeds? Well, it's anything that we are doing to glorify God and to bless other people. There's any number of examples that will come forth from Jesus' ministry. He will forgive a woman who's caught in adultery. He doesn't condemn her. 
He seeks to restore her. It's Matthew 25. When did we see you, Lord, uh, naked and we clothed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when did we visit you in prison? These are all examples of doing something that is a good deed, that brings blessing to the person and glory to God. This is our call as a church. This is our call as Holy Trinity. This is our call as Christians. Let our light shine before others that they may see our good deeds and what? And glorify our fathers in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You know, many people do good deeds. You don't have to be a Christian to do good deeds. But there is a particular way, Bruner goes on to explain, that he says the translation sounds like this. Sounds like your kind of good deeds, speaking to the church. What, what kind of good deeds are those? Because people, as I said, there's people that they don't have to necessarily believe in the Lord to provide food to the hungry. They don't have to believe in the Lord to want to have, see shelter and homes built for folks that, that need that, who are unhoused. You know, that's sort of a, a common, compassionate way that, that we as people should be acting more and more, and we see many of our friends who don't know the Lord in, act in, in that capacity. But the particular kind of good deeds are the things that are motivated by the Lord's life in us and often are done the way that He would do them. Quietly, silently. Jesus will go on to say, if you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't advertise it. Don't put your, your, your name in the donors list. Just be anonymous. Just let God knows what we're doing for His sake. God knows one of the things that often does distinguish Christians, though, is that ability to forgive in spite of amazing things that have, and hurtful things that have happened to us. And we can only do that because of what Jesus has done for us, that his forgiveness of us is the only thing that allows us to say, Lord, I will forgive you. I will forgive that person in your name. So there are particular kinds of things that, that, that characterize how the believer does. It's, it's hard to distinguish at times, and a distinguishing feature is not necessary for what we're talking about. It is just that we are called to a place of mission. We are given this astonishing purpose and meaning by being called salt and light. But let's be honest, what makes this hard is that we live in a world and we carry this out in a world that scoffs at such things. We, our world, our age, our culture does not believe, frankly, that there is much in the way of meaning and purpose. There's a whole philosophical tradition of 19th century and 20th century philosophers. Uh, you guys know them better than I because I know a lot of you guys have studied this. But names that, that I can recall, Heidegger and Nietzsche and Camus and Bertrand Russell, these are people that that had their own version of meaning, trying to find meaning and purpose that is absolute, that is somehow compelling and, and incumbent on everybody, is a fool's errand. There is nothing like that. And so Camus said, life is absurd. And Bertrand Russell said, it doesn't matter how, how great your accomplishment, how long people might read what you write. At the end of the age, when all that we can see collapses, I guess that was his vision of the future as somewhat of a scientist, it will all count for nothing. There is no higher meaning and purpose. And that can be, frankly, uh, disheartening. I've been reading a book by Tim Keller called Making Sense of God. And it's, an, it's called, in subtitle, Invitation to the Skeptical. 
And he makes this very point, that when we talk about meaning and purpose, philosophers are primarily deconstructing that, or have been deconstructing that for some time now. So that if you're looking to something in this world that provides that, or some uh, traditional narrative, you won't find it. His conclusion is that it only comes from outside of us. It is something that is given to us, not something that we create. Something that we discover in Christ, and not something that we conjure up in our own mind. And so, if we're going to be salt and light, this is the environment that we're in. This is the water that we swim in. So sometimes just, just trying to be salt and light in this world in this time is challenging. Sometimes it's hard because we're struggling with the way that we've understood Christianity and been raised in it. And we think, I don't think it's having all the answers for the issues that I'm looking at or evaluating or in the middle of or confronting. Keller, in his book, talks about, a, a, he read a blog by a fellow who was raised in a, in a Christian family in a small town, and he said, uh, the, the guy writes about his own deconstruction journey. He said, I was raised to believe that Darwin was a hoax, Columbus was a God-ordained missionary, founding fathers were biblical literalists. And then I moved to New York City. And then I began to meet people and talk to them who had all kinds of arguments about the things that I was raised with. And I could not, in good conscience, continue in those same beliefs. And Keller makes the point, he said, these, the, the problem that this blogger is experiencing is that he has rested his faith in Christ on what, he would, what Keller calls supportive beliefs. The way that the gospel has been interpreted or the way the gospel has been emphasized in our life. And in those times when, when there's uh, an inability to confront things or history, then, then it doesn't take much to reveal the fact that they're not much of a support. And so this is why Keller does say, for the believer, we are receiving this truth. It's the only way that you can go forward. It's the only way that we can be on this mission. It's the only way that we can think of ourselves as salt and light. So if we've received the Lord's commission... That he is, that we are salt, that we are light. If we've received that to do those good deeds, that, that convey that gospel, that same salt and light that we got from the Lord, we want to offer to other people in all kinds of ways. Just sometimes by praying for your colleagues, sometimes by being alongside of people, sometimes by just doing something that's unseen, sometimes just by an invitation. Don't hear in good deeds just a full-on evangelistic presentation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being the Lord in the way that he was to us, to other people. Take what we've received and extend it. So how do we do that? How do we move forward in that? I think Paul gives us a clue in the, in the um, testament that was read in, in Colossians. Paul is one who has amazing gifts, right? He has an amazing experience. He's on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off his mule and a voice from heaven comes. And then he's, you know, miraculously hands are laid on him. The spirit descends on him. And yet when he's going to the Corinthian church to present the gospel, he is scared. He says, I go in weakness. I went in weakness and in fear and in trem and trembling. Why? Well, the Corinthians had quite a reputation. They were really accomplished in the things that mattered in that day. Oratory and logic and rhetoric. These guys were kind of in the major leagues of that. And Paul isn't any of those things. 
It's like going to visit the cool kids, and he's not a cool kid. What does he do? Well, he says this. He said, I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is the key if we're going to be salt and light. This is not about us trying to muscle up and be our best. I mean, that, it is important to, to do well and those things. But to think that we can do what God is asking us to do independent of God's spirit is a fool's errand. And Paul doesn't at all do this. So he says, I, I came in weakness. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the Spirit's power. And he goes on to say, the Spirit searches all things, and even the deep things of God. For you, who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Here's how we move through this time and this place of, of disbelief, of marginal beliefs, of supportive beliefs for some believers that aren't going to stand the test of time. We do so as we let the Lord's Spirit lead us. Be in us. We don't want to... Who do I need to be light to, Lord, today? It, what, where can I be salt? Salt is a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more um, biting in time. So, Lord, if I have to have a hard conversation, give me the wisdom, give me... Help me to do that. If I have to speak truth into a situation or your truth, or if I have to resist something that's, that is clearly not of you and something that's really harmful to people that you love, like you love me, give me the courage to say that. We will feel this kind of fear that Paul felt. To be a Christian is not to, be, uh, not, to not feel fear, but it is to know the courage of the Lord that comes through his spirit. When Alyssa was reading Psalm 27, you know, it says, you know, whom shall I fear? You're the stronghold of my life. There's no self-dependency in that. There's dependency on God. So as we think about uh, getting ready for Lent, I want us to get in touch with this amazing thing that we are part of the, the most important people on the planet, again, to quote Bruner. That might take some getting used to, but it's only because Jesus has privileged us to do that. And to, to work that out and to say, Lord, I, I want to be that salt and that light in the areas of my life. And I don't want to shrink back from that. I want you to lead me in that way. How does he lead us? David Benner in his book, Desiring God's Will, says that it's not so much about willpower or us doing particular actions so much as it is wanting God to, to speak to our heart. Because the heart, out of the heart, all things flow. So Benner says this, desire the heart of God in exchange for our own heart of stony, egocentric willfulness. And then God invites us to allow this new heart to lead our choosing, a redeemed heart guiding redeemed choosing, to choose to be salt and light, to choose to say some things that may need to be said, to do some actions that are hard, to do some things that will clearly be sacrificial, that won't be convenient, that will be interruptive to our life that will cause people to wonder maybe what we're doing, but this is all part of Jesus' own ministry and Paul's as well. And if we're following Jesus, we cannot necessarily escape the things, the ways that these, our Lord and his apostles traveled. Let me close with some practical things just as you think about getting prepared. Um, first thing is just sit in the awesome significance of God's calling us light and salt. I just need to sit in that. I just need to let the Spirit speak to me. 
I don't even know what that means fully. Let him speak to you about the places where he knows and you know, and he's affirming where you are, his presence, where you are that salt and where you are that light. Let him nudge you into other conversations or other ways that you think, oh yeah, well, I, I think you're leading me there, but I'm dragging my heels. We're, we're having a dialogue instead of letting you lead. Don't feel bad. Don't feel condemned. One of the things I love about the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints weren't afraid to bargain with God. You know, about Moses, like, I need help or just kill me. Abraham, will you destroy that city if 50 righteous people are there? No. How about 40? No. 30? Gets them down to 10. Jacob wrestles with God. So don't put this in a sort of hermetically sealed spiritual bubble. Be real. Be honest. Be authentic. Say, Lord, I'm not, I don't know where you're leading me here. I don't really want to go. That's a great place to start. Let the Spirit speak to you. And then imagine finally with the Spirit's help, what would be different if you let God lead you and uncovered more areas where you could be salt and light? God calls this that we would glorify him and be a blessing. Whatever we do as we follow along that way, we will never regret when we're with him in eternity. It's only now in our very humanness, in our very, uh, you know, we're so in touch with our fear and our resistance, that's natural. But we can pass through that. And I pray that we do. So that's our first kind of get ready for, for Lent. And next week, we'll talk about some of the things that we, can, that we can specifically let go of. And then some of the ways in the third week we, we follow Jesus in particular. Things that really are the distinctives of a follower of Christ. Amen.